Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I am your host and the Grumpy Surfer, Ads Lyston. This year sees the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict, which took place in 1982, and it was the first full British war since the Second World War. This fortnight's podcast is all about 4-5 Commando's recce troop during the Falklands War. Here's a little bit of information on the Falklands War before we start the podcast. Following the Argentinian invasion on the 2nd of April 1982, 4-5 Commando had their Easter leave cancelled and hastily deployed to the Falklands, travelling in a mix of Royal Navy and Fleet Auxiliary ships. Having made a tactical landing on Ajax Bay on the 21st of May 1982, the men of 4-5 Commando yomped across East Falkland via Port San Carlos, Newhouse, Douglas Settlement, Teal Inlet and Mount Kent to take part in the battle for Port Stanley. They conducted a night attack over the 11th and 12th of June 1982. The Argentinians surrendered on the 14th of June 1982. This is an account of a man who was part of 4-5 Commando's reconnaissance troop. Please enjoy my conversation with former Royal Marine, Marty Wilkin. Marty Wilkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tal. How are you doing? Good, Ed, thanks. Yeah, really good. What have you been up to at the moment? Uh, so at the minute, I'm still working in CTC. Um, I've done, been doing quite a lot of lit, uh, stuff from the Falklands. People, are, seem, it seems to be in in vogue at the moment. Everybody wants to know about the Falklands. So, well, it's the forty year anniversary yeah, this year, though, right? Is, yeah, and I've just come back from Scotland when I went to Four Fives reunion. So that was great. Yeah. How'd you find all those reunions for the Falklands? Well, I never went to any until um, the thirty fifth, and the only reason I went to the thirty fifth was because. I'd gone down there. I was still in the corps. I was at Hasler Company on the staff, and um, and they took seven guys who were down the Falklands, and seven guys that weren't uh, during the war. Um, and uh, there was a we went had a core birthday down there on the in twenty fourteen. So um, yeah, so it was uh, yeah, it was. I didn't that I went to the uh, to our memorial. Or it's really like a can with a very, very small brass plate on it. Uh, and it had been there for 35 years. And the RMA in the Falklands had left a cleaning box underneath. So everybody had been cleaning the uh, cleaning the, the, the plaque, but it had, the, the inscription was starting to lose the names. So uh, I was a bit concerned about that. So in the time between then and 2017, I put together a plate, a big, bronze plate with big letters that wouldn't wear off and you could just throw a bucket of water and scrub it and it would come clean um, and got that sorted out uh, with uh, you know, Curly Elstow who's the head of the Royal Marines Association in the Falklands and we put together a, a new a new memorial right in the middle of the two sisters right instead of on the highest point which obviously some people would struggle with so the only reason I went to that one was to tell everyone what I'd done which the CEO wasn't very happy with me about, but there you go. Um, and um, yeah, and it was well, t- it was well accepted and people liked, liked the whole, the whole thing. So it was good. So a, a little bit about yourself. I mean, I, I know a couple of details, but obviously you're the man to, to, to spin it. Um, you joined, you joined the Corps in what, 1972? Yeah. And you left around about, was it 2009? Yeah, there was a big gap in the middle. So I did from, uh, from 72, August 72, till the last day of 96. 
uh, in the regular, you know, in my regular role. And then in 13 years after that, in 2009, I was invited to rejoin the Corps to go on an omelette team in Afghan uh, to train uh, officers uh, in Afghan. We'll come on to that a little bit later yeah, on. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's an, it's an extensive career. It's, it's, a, it's a lifetime. Yeah, 31 of, years in total I did. Yeah. I mean, it's mental. And the things that you've seen and, and done... I mean, I've done 22 years and in in my head, I've done at least five normal person's lifetimes and the things that I've seen and done. And, yeah. and to be fair, sort of like the same as you really, like when I, when I joined the Marines, I was very lucky in the fact that I actually joined at a time where war was just about to kick off. Yes. So I saw, you know, three tours of Afghan, yeah. I saw the invasion of Iraq mm-hmm. And and then all of a sudden, two thousand and fourteen, Afghanistan finished, or or you know the the the, des- the Middle East um, down. just just completely slowed down and, yeah. and and shut down, and and I didn't do anything for the second half of my career. No. I primarily aimed myself to do that because you know in my head, probably similar to you, I I thought I'd lost all of my cat lives, so I didn't want to put <laughs> myself in harm's way anymore. So yeah. Um, it, it's quite an extensive, extensive career that you've had. So let's go right back to the start. So, you know, why, where did you grow up and why did you join the Royal Marines? Right. So um, I lived up in Harlow, Newtown in Essex. Um, and uh, in the early 70s, I took up with horse riding and I was a very small guy and uh, I liked horses a lot. And, um, and I, I got in the end to work at a racing stable. And uh, so I was riding racehorses and training racehorses. Uh, one day, the guy who owned the stable said, Martin, just get on those scales a minute. And uh, I'd been playing a bit more football at school and my thighs had got a bit bigger and heavier. And so he said, uh, you're a bit uh, you're a bit too heavy to be a jockey now, mate. He says, you, you know, I'd be wrong of me to keep you here thinking you can be a jockey because, you know, the, at best you'll be able to do national hunt and not, not flat. So he says, I'm going to tell you now, you know, just don't come back to the yard. You need to find something you're capable of. Lots of other things. Do something else. So the uh, Passmore's comprehensive that I was at had uh, a marine, a, a naval, a sea, sea cadet detachment with a ta- detachment of marines, and I joined them and did a bit of time with them, and loved it. Uh, got a weekend at pool, you know, to look at life as it was called then, and I was like that. This is this is right up my street. I'll do this, and so uh, by. 29th of August 1972 I uh I joined the corps yeah 16 years four months uh passed out the following June um green buried uh, we did, did the green berry a slightly different way around then you did it earlier and then did continuation training afterwards so uh yeah so we did time at deal then from deal to limpston and then through the commando tests I weighed about 10 stone if I was wet <laughs> at that stage and five foot four and yeah and got through it all so how did you find the whole experience of recruit training back then well because of my little bit of experience I had about five months with the marine cadets and so they sent me up to lossy mouth for a trip and some other places so I had a good idea what it was going to be like and so some of the stuff that some of the others struggled with in my troop was like core history you know that's that, that bread and butter in the cadets everyone had to know all the core history and you know you had to be able to dot the i's across the t's so yeah um so that was the easy stuff um and 
yeah, I, I enjoyed recruit track. Uh, we went to deal juniors, always went to deal first uh, for the best part of six months and then moved in February to Limston. Uh, but the whole thing was great. It was just right up my street and it really, you know, it was singing my song. Yeah. How did you find the whole endurance thing? Because when I joined up, so th- I think this is a story I've never told really before is that. So my, one of my friends when I was at school, he, um, his uncles, they were in the SBS. Right. And every Christmas they used to have a bit of a family gathering and me being a bit of a feral cat, I used mm-hmm. to end up around his house and yeah. listen to the stories of his uncles, you know, yeah. telling tales of grandeur and firefights and stuff like that. Probably yeah. weren't supposed to be telling that sort of thing, but, yeah, yeah. you know, little kids like that soak it up, right? Yeah. And I was like, I, I, you know, I fancy a bit of that. And my dad was uh, was in the reserves, mm-hmm. uh, in the Fusilier Reserves. Oh. He used to run um, the Obua camp down at uh, down in Salisbury. Um, yeah. And his dad before that was in the Swalish, Polish Special Forces during the Second oh. World War. Right. So a bit of family heritage there. I didn't feel any obligation that I needed to do it. But, you know, joining the Marines was, was like, yeah, sounds, sounds pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite a laid back kind of guy. Uh, a rugby career didn't come to fruition, so I decided, yeah. "Fuck it, I'm I'm going to join the corps." I didn't really read too much into it yeah. that much. So when I rocked up at the uh, careers office, they're like, "Yeah, just do some runs and you know upper body fitness." One, well, my upper body fitness was pretty decent already. Like, yeah. you know, I could do pull ups and press ups till my eyes bled. Yeah. That, that was not a problem. I was an absolute handbrake. So, and I didn't realise that that the Marines was like endurance based. So when yeah. I got down there, and I think it was the second or third week, you do like you know the old BFT. So you did the uh, three mile route. Yeah. I was absolutely in the hurt locker, <laughs> and, that, and I didn't even realise. And the whole way through, I just struggled because mm. my body was very much in that um, like that sprinter state. You know, fast twitch fibers, yeah. and it hadn't transferred over yet to the slow twitch and it wasn't until probably about five or six years after passing out that I resembled any form of like endurance whatsoever. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, at 16, you don't, you don't have much endurance at all, do you really? You just get out there and do it and, and as best you can. Um, yeah, I, I'd been told to start running, so I was running to and from school. But, you know, out my generation, everybody walked to school, nobody got the car to school you know no matter how far away it was you had to you had to get to school and back and so for me I was quite lucky it was quite a distant distance so you know I was getting sort of six miles in every day and then started doing little runs and shuttle runs to it so that was good um yeah I I really did turn up and I was just it was just clicked with me really I got the second diamond in training so I uh I got uh three months advancement per you know when you come out of training um, which was, yeah, it was quite, quite nice. Uh, our King's Badgerman was really good and he really deserved it. He was he was like a man compared to the rest of us all boys. Like, it was quite good, yeah. Well, I, had, I was quite lucky in the way that I had a little bit of a vast experience within like my recruit troop. Um, there was a guy there who was like in his you know early 30s and mm. I don't know why, but he left the French Foreign Legion as a sergeant. <laughs> yeah. So it's in a lot of time in Africa and yeah. in the jungles around there. And um, if you've ever read The Devil's Guard, what the Germans used to do with like the civvies, like wrapping them around the uh, the wagons when they were driving around, so yeah. um, so that the you know the the resistance didn't shoot them. Yeah, that's pretty much what 
the sort of stories that were coming out of from <laughs> yeah, his mouth, yeah, you know. Sure, so, yeah. and he had more gongs than than the training team did. So yeah. they kind of like left him alone. Um, <laughs> didn't stop me being left alone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's yeah. just getting smashed because I'm shit at everything. Yeah. But yeah, it, it it was interesting. I mean, did you have any guys like that that had a bit of experience behind when you joined up? No, because we were all juniors at that stage. You, you had whole junior troops or you know uh, whole recruit troops. And so and now we were all just 16, 16 years and four, tip, and four months, and that was it. So there was no difference really at all. So when you passed out of training, you know, when, where did you end up? Uh, so came out of training in June of 73 uh, and went straight to 4-5. There was only two of us that went to June, myself and Brian Tilly. Um, everybody else went to 4-1 Commando, which was at that stage was at Malta, and it was the growing up Commando. You went there to have your first kind of... Um, kind of you know run around get drunk a few times and drive blooming big motorbikes and stuff like that and and get that out of your system so it was an 18 months draft and so uh, they all went there and then a lot of them came to four or five after that and so a lot of the people that were in training with me then joined four or five uh, in the end of 74 start of 75. Oh nice so did, did you get Many sort of like Northern Ireland trips and yeah, stuff like so, that? Yeah, uh, so first Northern Ireland to 74. Um, uh, I was still 17 when we went out and then had my birthday out there. Um, we, You know, you had to stay in. Obviously, you couldn't go out on the street. So it was it was Sanger duty, watch on, stop on um, for the first uh, three weeks. And then after that, yeah, um, Falk Hill, it was known as Bandit Country. It was next or just very close to Silverbridge and Cross McGlen. So it was right down there in South Armagh. Um, on that tour, you know, we lost two guys, not my troop, but four troop lost two guys. Uh, and I heard my all-time hero at that stage, uh, well, one of one of my big heroes at that stage was a guy called Dave Ford. And, uh, you know, uh, these guys got blown up uh, in an OP and killed, obviously very killed. And... Um, blown to pieces and they were uh, Dave Ford and his team were t- sent to go and pick up the pieces um, bag it up because the farmer whose land it was on was complaining <laughs> wanted compensation and all sorts of things so yeah and you could hear in Dave's voice the absolute kind of you know holding back the tears you know sobbing away really and it's just I was like Jesus that is you know for him in my eyes my hero to be like that um was something I'll never forget. Even now I can, you know, sometimes I can hear it. So, yeah. Um, so it was a tough tour. Um, yeah, it was a, a good, hard tour. For, uh, and then days, it's only four months. So it was over pretty quick. Uh, but during the R&R R- 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 phase, I actually had a four-man brick to myself and had to run an OP and stuff like that. So that was great. And I uh, thoroughly enjoyed that, being, being in charge and being given the opportunity to do it. It was great. Did you do end up doing many tours? Uh, I think in total of seven, uh, seven tours in Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. Over, well, between the sort of the seventies and the nineties, it was yeah, it was yeah. quite rife, wasn't it? Ireland was you know Regular. the, the, the yeah. hot spot for the UK, really. It was. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were we had presence all over the place, didn't we? Yeah, and and I'll be honest, it it gave us a live fire kind of location, didn't it? It gave us somewhere to go. So I'd been shot at in South Armagh, which I was grateful for when you look back at it, because uh, when we got to the Falklands and there was a big shoot up, it was like, oh, I've been there before, I know what that's like and I know how I'm going to perform sort of thing. So so that was quite handy. Um, 
And then, of course, the other thing was, uh, and it, it really didn't happen for me until in Afghan. Um, I had the opportunity, somebody shot my vehicle up, who was a, an Afghan soldier, but it was in civvies, uh, put three rounds into my vehicle. And I got out and caught my weapon, pointed at him. And then, you know, that kind of, why am I shooting him? Kind of that, that question, you, the card questions. Why am I asking, you know, why am I shooting this guy? Is he a threat to me now? Do I need to shoot him? And I didn't. And uh, that led to Liam Fox giving me a commendation for not shooting and not having an international incident. This guy thought we were trying to help some of the recruits escape over the wall. And so he shot at my vehicle thinking I was helping him. Uh, yeah, he got to understand anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think th there's quite a few stories like that. And you never really you never really hear about them, believe it or not. I yeah. actually have one story that's like that. All right. So... I was. We, we were doing a, a bit of a clearance in a, in an Afghan village just outside of the uh, town of Goresh, mm -hmm. um, uh, outskirts of Goresh, and uh, I'd finished doing my supporting role of the ground troops, sure. so I was just kind of like floating around and um, just providing different supports, mm -hmm. putting weapon systems down different waddies just to do a bit of cover. Yeah. And about well, when I first when I first flew out to to Afghan. I was on the ground for like three days, mm. uh, Camp Bastion, and then I was straight out with J Company to Gresh in, in Gresh, and then I was straight out on the ground with with yep. with my uh, with my team. So you know, it was pretty quick. And yep. literally the third day I was there, we got mortared. Mm -hmm. Never been mortared before, and never been shot at before. Yeah, you know, so it was a bit of you know. Uh, baptism by fire, so to Absolutely, speak. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, and the village where the we were getting mortared from and some small arms coming from was this village that we were searching. So about three months later, we went back to search this village for weapons and and uh, an ID making stuff. And so I'd finished doing what I was doing and there was a little road. And along this road, where the 50 cal uh, machine gun bullets had hit the roofs, and the GPMG bullets, they plastered all up with white. So I, I looked at them, oh, this looks pretty cool. So I drove down the road. And as I was driving down the road, I came to a, like a big quad and there was loads of women and kids there. Mm. Uh, so it must have been, I obviously it wasn't school time, but they were doing something. Yeah. And as I drove in there, they took one look at us and went, stopped and just bombast. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then literally as that happened, a 10-man like ambush team, Taliban ambush team, started jogging out of the green belt about 30 metres in front of us. I stopped. I looked at them. They stopped. They looked at us. And I went, fuck. <laughs> and I couldn't fire because if I'd have fired, I'd have killed loads of women and kids yeah, from, yeah, from yeah. the rounds going off. Yeah. So anyway, we ended up, you know, reversing out of it. Really, really long story short, I ended up falling out of my vehicle. My radio came off. I ended up running after the vehicle because I'd fallen out of it. Anyway, we got out of there and, and, and we took him out in the end. But on the, on the wash-up afterwards, they said, oh, you know, Corporal Ison had a bit of a, you know, bit of a kick-up. And, uh, and, and I explained that, you know, I didn't open fire. I could have killed all 10 of them yeah. in one go. Mm-hmm. I'd have killed loads of civvies as well yeah. and everyone just left and I was like this was it was, a, it was a weird morality for me yeah yeah because I wouldn't have been able to live myself I don't think if I'd have if no. I'd have shot them yeah 
we got him in the end, hmm. but at that very point, and I couldn't, I couldn't understand in my head, yeah. and still to this day, really can't figure out like why everyone laughed. Now, whether it was just because it was the way I was telling the story is quite funny. Hmm. I'm not a funny bloke. I'm from Birmingham. I've got a quite a dry, monotonous tone to my voice, hmm. so I don't think it was that funny. Yeah, but it it was just. You know, it was just a weird thing. Like, Did you, know? you put that down to stuff you'd done in Northern Ireland and the card system and the fact that you always had to justify why you were doing fire or no? No, because the car, uh, we were, the on, we were was... on 429 Alpha yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was kind of almost weapons-free to a certain yeah, yeah, extent. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, just purely because it was kind of bandit country and we yeah. were, like, fighting every single day. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you didn't go out and have a three-hour firefight, something was wrong like yeah, you know yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why it just kind of it became sort of like a, the bit of the social norm really yeah you know and that's when though once people near you have been killed that's when that that, that mental attitude changes and the approach and that that's what happened really with the marine a thing wasn't it i mean effectively they'd been drudged and then you know one person too many had been killed and that was it they were kind of really out there going for it really so Look, my, I've got uh, my opinion behind this, I'm not going to go too deep into no, this no, because no. everyone's got their own opinion yeah, yeah. to it but at the end of the day I think that cameras social media okay. um, has kind of made you too wary mm-hmm. about things now when you're in that kind of environment and you know granted someone might have been killed a couple of people might have been killed um, from friendly forces side and you've taken out a few people. This guy's blatantly going to die, mm-hmm. regardless of yeah. how much effort you put into him. Mm. Now, I, I didn't listen to the inquest or anything like no. that, so you know, forgive my ignorance. But my, as a commander, I'd be like that. Right? Is he going to be a bit of a burden to us now, where we are? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's going to die anyway, so. He's ending him a bad thing quickly. Mm. He's going to put him out of his misery. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But then when some numbskull videos it, <laughs> and then it looks like an execution. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've, you haven't got a leg to stand on, really. No, it's like being on the gate like you guys, right? Yeah. Some bloke comes in drunk and, you know, tries to cock the weapon like used to be the funny thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> used to come in drunk and try and cock the guard bloke's weapon. But you get caught doing that, and then, you, then the next day you're like, "No, it wasn't me." It's like, <laughs> but you're on the camera, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, after so. the uh, after those Northern Islands, we're we're kind of coming on to the uh, to the to the Falklands bit. So, yeah. um, obviously, it's kind of a a big part of British military history. Oh. Yeah, like yeah. massive part of it really yeah, yeah. especially in sort of like the last 40 to 50 years after mm. the second world war um you know did you have any inkling whatsoever that that it was coming around or was it no i was uh so i was it's my 26th birthday uh on the 1st of april and uh, april fool's day and um me and the missus anniversary on the 2nd so uh, I thought I'd do that because it'd be easier to remember, you know. <laughs> I won't ever forget that. Have my birthday card and then go, oh, anniversary card. So, uh, so yeah, we, we were living in our growth at the time. And uh, I don't think there was any, anybody had an inkling that it was about to, about to hit, you know. Uh, the British government got completely caught out. The whole of the UK thought, what are the Argent- uh, the 
Argentinians doing invading Blooming the Faroe Islands. You know, it was uh, thought it was the north of Scotland. So, yeah, it was. I mean, obviously, I had a knowledge of the Falkland Islands only because I nearly ended up on one of the, the teams going down there, the, the 8901, MP8901. Uh, didn't happen, but uh, yeah, so I knew what was going. You know, I knew where it was, and and uh, people in recce pretty quickly because I was in four fights recce then. Uh, so yeah, pe- we we very quickly pinged it and knew where we were, what we were talking about. Was there any kind of like build up training to it or anything like that? So four five commando hadn't gone to the Arctic that year. We'd done um, we'd done mountain training in Scotland, and we'd done it both from. Uh, October through Christmas and then out the other side so we we did you know and so it was a little bit of white shod in on Ben Nevis and stuff like that but not a lot myself and a guy called Dave Lazenby were seconded to help the BBC make a movie in that uh, some sort of February March um, to help the BBC and they were trying to get live pictures of a climb, a climb up the north face of Ben Nevis in uh, in winter and they brought in a, uh, a lady to kind of spice it up. She'd just been working with Hamish McInnes on this film with Sean Connery up in, in, in the Alps. And so they brought her in and then a couple of other climbers came in. But then the whole of the UK's climbing gang turned up. Um, it was a pretty, uh, pretty bad winter, I think, um, in the time we were up there. So we were up there from sort of end of February through to the middle of March. I think it was like 13 people got killed in that, that year. It was, a, it was a bad year. Uh, the pictures from the North Face never actually materialised because the day they were going to send them. They did do a, a live kind of thing with, uh, with Swap Shop at the time. Um, but uh, the actual live pictures of the climbing never happened because the weather just turned on them on the day. But the guy who was making that, that movie or making that programme was a guy called uh, Michael Beck. Michael Begg was the top out, outdoor, you know, um, uh, program guy. He he was doing <laughs> everything, royal weddings and the royal tournament and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, him being there with myself and Dave and a couple of other bootnecks turned up, you know, at different times to help out. That's when we got to the behind the lines, the ML kind of the first of the ML programs. So yeah, and he was a he was a fan ever since ever, right after that. From then on, yeah, Mike Begg was always trying to get things done with the core. So that was a, that was an interesting kind of bloke to know. He's good though. So were you um were you in the ML at the time? I was uh, Falklands ML one uh, corporal. Yeah, I was just about to come as seniors after that leave. So yeah, uh, we were all I was all fired up, ready to go. Um, you know, nothing. Uh, and done too much prep because, like I say, we've been doing all this stuff with the BBC. It was a little bit like when, when we went out to Afghan, mm-hmm. um, you know, on, on Jakarta. Yeah. There was no kind of real, real prep for that. No. You know, no. the planes went into the into the twin towers. Three months later, four fives loaded onto a plane. Going out, you go, fellas. Out you go to Bagram. Yeah. And then you land in, in the middle of. Afghanistan outside yeah. the you know outside of the uh, the capital Kabul yeah living in you know twenty four by eighteens tents yeah. yeah 
On camp beds. Yeah, in 40 degrees. In 40 degree heat. <laughs> and minus 30 in the winter. Yeah, and everybody <laughs> else is in the accommodation, like the Americans and stuff. Yeah. And, and and we're basically like living like desert rats, basically. Yeah. It's pretty stinking. And, uh, and, the, and the prep for that was, you know, I think all I remember is we had a new troop boss. This is classic, this is. New troop boss. Because mm-hmm. I was in heavy weapons at the time. Yeah. And he was like, right, let's do a Bergen run around the airfield because there's an airfield at 4-5. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, let's carry the 50 cows on the ammo. And I was like, right, okay. You know, it's fucking heavy, right? <laughs> but yeah, let's let's do it as what the pamphlet says. Let's, you know, put the uh, put the main body of the uh, of the machine gun, you know, top flap it. Yeah. Put the tripod and the soft mount on there. Right, you know, the younger lads... You can carry the ammo. Yeah. We can only really ca- carry like maybe an ammo box each because they weigh like 16 kilos yeah. each. You know, and then enough we go around this airfield and we're just looking at each other. This bloke is smoking crack. What's going on? <laughs> and that's all I remember my build-up being. No shooting packages, no. you know. Maybe a bit of um, maybe a bit of rifle, you know, shooting at Barry Budden. You know, yeah. maybe the odd day here and there. Yeah, I was never good at shooting anyway. I was always a suppressor. That's the way I used to say to myself. <laughs> yeah. Used to take me nine times to pass my shooting test. <laughs> that's why it's, it's got automatic on the rifle, right? Yeah, just, yeah. Just keep pressing there. Yeah. 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 Get the rounds right. down. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So like we we had no build up to that either, and then we were literally on the plane and 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 straight Suddenly out. Suddenly there. there you are. Yeah. And then you start thinking, right, what can we do to be better <laughs> now, now that we're here? And it's really too late. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How did you find all of like, you know, packing all your gear? Did you get many like well, kit lists or did oh, you just cuff God, it? God. Or? So turned up the first day. So they'd come around the, uh, the Marriott quarters at six o'clock in the morning, honking the horn, get into camp, get into camp. So into camp we go, get there. And, you know, the Falklands have been invaded. Um yeah, we're going to go down there and sort it all out. Uh, so then the first first order is right. We're going to be taking BVs. Uh, each section recce will have a BV, uh, and we'll work it from there. So pack, pack to go to work. You know, to do your your fighting in, and everything else on your BV. Forty five minutes past, just about getting to the point where it's nearly finished. Stop. Okay. Right now we're going to take Land Rovers and trailers, so get the BVs unpacked. But <laughs> so Land Rovers and trailers, and we changed the way we were going to travel probably eight times in that first day. Got to five o'clock in the afternoon, they went right, go home, come back tomorrow. So we came back the next day on the second, and um, and so then someone had more of an idea. So, okay, so what we're going to do is take your, you used to have to get issued a suitcase then, didn't you? So you get your suitcase, your kit bag, make sure it's all named up, tagged up and everything else. And that'll go heavy baggage and have all your fighting kit with you, your weapon, obviously, systems and all that stuff with you. And we're going to go like that. And so that's pretty much how it stayed um, for the next two days. So we're on a weekend by now. And I think whoever was running it, the ship wasn't ready for us. Uh, we were going to go on the Stromness, which was a refrigeration ship, which had been converted into one really big, and a support company pretty much on it only. 104 beds, um, one exit, one entrance, in and out of the of the hold where we were going to be. Thankfully, it had a bit of a flight deck um, and plenty of outdoor kind of space. But 
Yeah, so we drove down in, I don't know, it must have been a fleet of blooming, well, for our particular part, going to the ship we were going to, uh, it was only two two coach loads of stuff onto the ship, and then we sailed on the 5th. We went out of uh, out of Pom- uh, Pompey you know, on the 5th of April. Um, steamed away quite fast initially, and then everything slowed down because everyone realised that all the ships... Like you had ships with no helicopters that had submarine parts on it and submarine parts on it. So it was obviously going to be a long kind of shake it all out and get it all sorted. Nobody at that sort at that time thought it was going to come to a war. No, won't be anything like that. It's all going to be fine. You know, we'll all just uh, we'll all just get halfway, maybe get to ascension. A little bit of diplomacy. Yeah, that'll do. Okay, the Argentinians, oh, we didn't think you'd come this far. Uh, we're off. We're going back. But no. So... Uh, was, there a, was there a kind of a, a feeling of denial, like, on the ship, really? Like, um, I, I, And when you're talking about changing vehicles and stuff like that, mm. surely people would have known what the Falklands <laughs> environment would have been like. I think most people thought it was like Dartmoor, which... but. You know, and thinking that the tracks were the same, but the the Falklanders had no tracks like that. That when we went across, it was like proper roughest part of Dartmoor you could come across, and you wouldn't even you know attempt a Land Rover. The locals did because they knew what they were doing. Nice long wheelbases on the on the on the Land Rovers and stuff like that. But no, we were kind of everyone was like, well, the ground's like this and like that, and some people that knew we had a guy with us that had been to 8901 two years before so he was great so he gave us all the kind of things that we needed to know about the ground um but we very quickly got into a training regime uh where it was all about recognition so we knew that they had uh the the skyhawk and we knew they had the super attendard um, and so those aircraft, you know, we knew how to, and then they had the LTP-7, which is like an armoured swimming, armoured personnel carrier, which the Americans had sold them. So we we did loads of different things to work out different things. And then we had uh, all the guys um, from mortars were, were doing mortar fire controlling all the time, day in, day out, just until it was absolutely so sweet and, and really good. Got to Ascension, and we were all quite up on all the things we thought we needed to, to know. Um, people were happy with what they were doing. Um, things like IWSs, the, 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 the first generation IWS, I got given one of those. Um, and uh, it weighed an absolute ton. And I carried that all the way from start to finish. But um, And it might have saved my life one day. But um, so, yeah, it, it was a hodgepodge. People were asking, can we fire off the back end at, you know, things, but the ship was doing up and down, up and down. And the bag of rubbish was, you know, just, you know, was not really a very good target and stuff. So it was just a matter of doing something. And then at Ascension, then I think we had one day when we had a range day, we were able to shoot properly and calibrate and stuff, weapons. But, um, you know, so we were there a long time you know there's very little to do people started jumping onto like you had LC, a mate from lc you getting over to the ship and he'd come to deliver something <gasps> can you take us to the camera we can go and have a beer because they still had beer <laughs> going on the camera. so over to the camera and then uh, all boats have stopped working oh we're here for the night okay so <laughs> get our heads down somewhere find somewhere to get your head down next morning looking for a boat wondering if you've been missed on your own ship it was uh, 
yeah, it was it was good fun really. And did the yomp up to the green part of the island. You know, uh, Ascension's got it's all rock. It's basically a volcanic rock. And then just on the top where the Marines used to live in the 1800s, um, it's nice and green. Uh, and so we did a yomp up to that. Just but that was the only physical training that was of any value to us really to our legs. You imagine so. By the time we get down there, it's like seven weeks. So you come from mountain training where you've got loads of good legs on, and now all of a sudden your legs are weak, like matchsticks, and you're like, you want me to carry how much weight? Yeah. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good time. I mean, I, you knew that it was being taken really seriously at Ascension because there was so many assets there. There was blooming, you know, harriers about. There was blooming uh, helicopters of every kind about and stuff being moved from ship to ship to ship. And yeah, so you knew the hierarchy were taking it seriously, but you still didn't believe there was any likelihood that you were going to, you know, go to war. Regardless of all that, it must have been quite an impressive sight to see all that shipping and, oh, yeah. and, and all that, you know, all that. Amazing. Um, ordinance that's there yeah yeah it was amazing it's stuff coming out of you know out of one ship and you think what's that for then you sort of get see a rapier system all right that's they can bring in rapier that's good news you know stuff like that but uh yeah it was it was impressive and you knew that it at the management level we're obviously still thinking we're posturing you know we're still four thousand miles short of the target so let's um you know let's kind of just take it with a pinch of salt for the minute what was your first sight of the Falklands or was it just kind of a case of you all kept in the hold until you kind of got to the right. the forming up point and mm. then, you know, Bob's your uncle? So we cross-decked um, at Ascension from Stromness onto um, Tristram, the one that was next to the Galahad that got blown up. So we we're on the Tristram and... Um, so that, you know, can imagine going through the roaring 40s was not comfortable. Everyone's chucking their guts up everywhere. <laughs> um, just horrible. No places to train. The, the weather's so rough and dangerous, you couldn't go outside. So it's another two, two, best part of two weeks till we got into the South Atlantic area. Um, so, you know, we're now at like six, seven weeks since we started. Uh, then cross-decked again into Intrepid. There was not an inch of spare space on Intrepid. Um, just nothing as far as space was concerned on the day we went aboard that was the day that the helicopter had gone down with um, uh, with the SAS guys on is that the one that fell off the back of the ship because of the bad weather the albatross yeah, yeah, yeah. That they say it was an albatross in the, in the intake and, and yeah so that was a Sea King that popped in and it had too many people on it truth be known you know it had far too many people on it and that was of course that's, that was their second thing uh, down there because they'd also had a nightmare on um um, at Gritviken they'd had a nightmare there as well so with a helicopter the weather conditions weren't right and yet they went ahead with the job and so I lost the Wessex 5 there but nobody was nobody was killed in that one yeah we got down there so on the day we went ashore we were supposed to be in darkness um, and it didn't actually materialise we, we got to the you know you know you go to what's it stations whatever they call it uh disembarking stations and we got to it and we had an lcu for basically the whole of um yeah the whole of uh, support company we're in one lcu packed in tight um supposed to be in the dark it was now daylight and the uh and fanning head was raging and we had to go underneath fanning head and so you had the sas and some sb 
beating up a company of Argentines that were up on there. Um, and yeah, so we went in under, it was daylight, it was okay. And we ended up um, landing at Ajax Bay next to where the medical center was, the famous medical center, the red and green medic machine. So from the point of what day, was it the 2nd? 2nd of April. Of April you left and yes. then the 21st of May was when yeah. you went into Yeah, went into Ajax, Ajax Bay. 1982. Yeah. It must have been a relief to get off that ship as well. Oh, absolutely. Everyone was like, thank God. Because, you know, you see a ship as just a big grey target, don't you? You know, especially with Argentinian pilots, the way they are, or the Argentines and their reputation of being far, you know, low flying, fast moving and that. So yeah, it was it was great, and we were very lucky in recce troop. Myself and Ginge uh, Davidson got um, got pinged. We were going to do an OP straight away. So as soon as we got on the ground, pack your kit up. You're going to be on an OP for six six days. Uh, you know that's going to be your job, top of the Wessex Mount uh, Wessex Mount Sussex Mountains. So that was great because that gave us a chance to get away from everybody else as well. But that was one of the hardest jumps I've ever done in my life. It was it was a climb. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen what a rock run is? Yes. So it's like a river of rocks, you know, um, and um, and the slippiest things you've ever come across in your life. Um, really, really slippery. And no matter what kind of, sort of vibram sole, wow, I don't care. Most people didn't have vibram soles. The best people had at that stage was the Hawkins slipper, which was a uh, yeah carry more boot. That was some people had bought them themselves. I was pleased to say I had a pair, and, and that was that was better than anything else that was out there at that time. But um, yeah, so we got to up into this OP position, which was stonking, you know, really, really good. We had Ajax Bay behind us, um, and the first day, so we, we set up in night as you as you do, check comms, all the bits and pieces, went through all the all the things. So to our front, far on our right hand side, at sort of uh, sort of, if we say that straight across is at 12 o'clock, so say about half past two on our right side was Goose Green, about 25 kilometres. And then on our left-hand side, uh, about quarter two, was um, was uh, Darwin. So it's a spit of land between Goose Green and Darwin, which is great. Um, very, as it turns out, that's massively important to the Argentinians. So they're coming out of lots of different... Um, airport or air stations in Argentina and coming straight across on a bearing to hit this spittle of land which is their RP and then they're either splitting left or right so very quickly on that first day the first thing we had to, we were told right you need to give us air raid warning red if you see something well we could see them before they got to goose green sometimes depending if they were close together or not we could give them a rough number whether they're going to come from the north or the south and so that was our job initially you know, four sky oaks, four sky oaks from the knife, uh, from the north, uh, inbound now, you know, airy born red. And of course, then there was no communication between the land and the ships. So then it became a light, flash, flash, flash light. And then the first, the nearest ship would sound its horn and then that would go around. And so by the time it got to the last ship, the aircraft were already coming in. Um, so then, of course, the aircraft, uh, the ships were using... Sea Dart, Sea Slug, and Sea Dart, and Sea Cat, which were all wire guided. So majority of the Argentinian pilots chose to come over our OP to get down on the ridge the other side. So um, so they'd fire 
a couple of ships would fire one, two, maybe three missiles, chase the thing. Of course, the Argentinian pilot would dip down really quick on the other side of the ridge. And then these guys, because they can no longer see the target and they were wire guided, they had to blow them up. And so we were getting showered in, in wreckage, something horrible. Uh, yeah, for, for, for that day, it was weather kind of was on our side then after that, and it wasn't so bad the next day. But the next day, here's a classic. Here's an absolute classic. The next day, we're up there, and been in the OP. We're all settled. The routine's working well. And over to our left, about 2.5K is a para OP. So we tried talking to them, but they didn't want to talk to us because uh, we had different authentications or something like that. So they were there and they were getting ready to, they were preparing a place for the rapier to go. So um, that was them anyway. All of a sudden we can, we're thinking, what's that, what's that noise? And there's a, an artillery round over the top, bang into the, into the water and there's a helicopter there. So what's happened is the, the powers, uh, the tide is going out and they've seen this shaft of rock coming out of the water and think it's a submarine. So they've gone on the net. We've got an enemy submarine here. You know, we need we need uh, some artillery on it. So, okay. Somehow, God knows this is communication at its best, I think, ever. Within 20 minutes, a pinger helicopter, a Sea King with a, a sonar drone, turns up. And it's there and it's going, right, you know, you can see it's on the water. And there's this guy guiding air, uh, artillery onto it. First round was 100 metres off its tail. So we interjected, spoke direct to Golf 29. Stop, that's a seeking. <laughs> spoke it in clear. That's a seeking. Don't, don't, don't shoot down. So these guys have been, you know, not used to working near the coast. So you can understand how they'd see a kind of a straight piece looking like a, a bit of a conning tower. Uh, similarly, never seen a seeking before, you know, always used pumas. And so there was the next big problem. Uh, and so, yeah, so we had to stop that. But that, that, that was unfortunate, but good that nobody got killed. There's a know. big, there's quite a big story, really, isn't it, about the Falklands through the communication areas because yeah. there, there was communication areas between, like you say, between the ships and land. You're saying there that you you were on different frequencies or uh, different um, networks to, yeah. to the Paris. Yeah. Um, where now, like you know, the the equipment and the guys use, they're all like an all-informed network yes. that is um, that is secure. Yeah. And. Uh, and it's got all the crypto and stuff that's inside it to to stop any okay outside people listening yeah. in. Yeah, sure. But do you know what? And this is, I don't know, you might have a different opinion on this. I always used to think that if anyone was listening to what we were saying anyway, they wouldn't fucking understand it. No. I don't understand it <laughs> half the time. It was like that. Like, I, I never understood why you could just never talk normally. Yeah. And then say over afterwards. Yeah. Like, why do I have to speak in code? <laughs> yeah. What, do you not understand English? Yeah. Like, like, like yeah. quite literally. Yeah, yeah. But apparently it's like good form to do that, I guess. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know. No, I don't think so now. I think they just do, do, it's all clear speech now. But yeah, that, that was another aggravation, wasn't it? It was just another thing. It was a pain in the bum. Trying to remember what you called the AE rep, you know, and AE was what? I can't remember. Something like that. Yeah, or, or split someone fast, said split fast or something. Yeah. You're trying to ask a question, and someone goes, "Well, you need to speak to this person. Well, what the fuck's his call sign? I don't know." And like that, look, I've got my notes out. It wasn't in orders. No one told me what his call sign <laughs> was. All right, I'll just go up and ask him then, shall I? Yeah, it's, yeah, it was a bit. Well, so I, nothing as big as that had happened for donkeys' years, and I mean, the lessons learned from it were colossal. You know, were colossal.
So you um you went from Ajax Bay, you done your OP. Yep. So uh, we were up there for four days. Um one of the few places I've been lost at night. So I went out from the OP down to a place where we'd seen a little bit of a stream, got down there, and then came back up as black as black can be. Just not no fog, no mist, just black. No no you know, um no other light. And yeah, I was like, Where where are they? And I and I'd only just left them and I just filled all the water bottles up to come back up and I'm like where are they? In the end, I had to I had a light on my watch. I got them to get the IWS and I, I turned around in a circle. That's us now. Come that way. Come that way. So I had to walk. And it, I, I could have been there all night. Otherwise, it was just, you know, so black. But uh, yeah, so we did the, what I think we did three nights and four days up there. And then we came back and then ready for the move across. So, yeah. And that was the move from Ajax Bay to San Carlos. San Carlos. Yeah, San Carlos. So into San Carlos. That was uh, with a uh, on a um, uh, on an, an LCP. So just a th- a little one uh, for us because we were going to be leading, and of course I was the youngest ML one anywhere about. So okay, here's a map. So the first map was coastal, not a blooming. So it was like a chart. That'll see you all right for the first couple of miles. Then when you get inland a bit, here's a, here's a map. I've folded it for you. Oh, thanks. So tuck that in your shirt as well. Oh, and by the way, you know, you're like, no, no, no more. So anyway, we, we, at this stage, we're wearing 100-pound packs. You know, there's no one who was under 100 pounds. Uh, so we got off the boat. We punched out as quick as we could to get clear of San Carlos. Got out of the way and then wait wait stop 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 and we're thinking they need more room to shake out behind us and so we were like well what are we doing by way of a formation and it was like one man behind the other just single file go for it okay so for us it was a nightmare because we had some good yompers with us and stuff and so we did about the first 4k and then i thought oh i better have a look at this map they've given me so i had a bearing i was going on already so open the map up and uh there's this all the grid you know all the maps there but in the middle and the bit i'm just about to look at there's about eight squares with nothing in it it's a little piece of black print that says at the time of overfly this area is covered with cloud (laughs) didn't matter because you know i mean in another 4k further on there's going to be a telephone line i know there's going to be but we had to die you know kind of just go for it as best we could. But it was it was hard, hard work because the ground was the worst piece of Dartmoor you've ever come across and the, the weights. And we've been five weeks, nearly six weeks laid off. You know, no no physical activity with a big old weight on you, more weight than we'd ever carried for everybody. Um, so stop, start, stop, start. Hang on a minute, stop there, wait for us. It was like that, it was, it was painful. But we did get to new house. And we went into the house, we cleared the house because we got there first. We cleared the house and we were happy that that was that was fine. Um, and then we, somehow we got away with staying in it. So weather conditions at that time, temperature between sort of minus five and plus two. Snow, rain, sleet, everything all in the day. Constant wind. Wind's probably doing seven to nine 
mile an hour all the time. That's it all the time. And then you'd get some gusts that were up there in 20, 25. I can't days. imagine your waterproofs and stuff like that would oh. have been that good. Because when I joined training, we had like pusses tea bags. That's it. That's it. That's you know, it. which basically meant that you had a little bit of coverage, but where actually the seams met, yeah. there was no like that's waterproof right. in there. So you got wet anyway. The pusses tea bag. Yeah. So for, because we were Arctic, we had the uh, the reversible green one side, white the other, Okay. Uh, which were much, much heavier. But if you had to walk in them, you just sweat like a pig. There was no, no, I mean, uh, Gore-Tex. Oh, no, no. Nothing breathable. No, no, no. And of course, then with that, you had this big white side. So I wasn't even carrying them. I was like, nah, I'm not even going to carry it because I wouldn't wear it. So, yeah. So that was the end of day one. And then the command decision was, right, tomorrow morning, you need to pack your Bergens up. You, you may not see them for a couple of days. You need to be carrying and wearing everything you need for three days. And so that's what that's what we did the next day. We walked out, and that was much better. I mean, still carrying a lot of weight because the ammunition seven seven six two, you start carrying over a hundred of them, and it's as you well know, you know, it's heavy stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done a few exercises over Dartmoor and those baby heads. Uh, you know, yeah. horrendous at the best yeah. of times. They are, and they used to flare my feet up with blisters like like yeah. no end. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult for, for, for people's perspectives unless, you know, if you're listening to this, Dartmoor is a, a bit of like a national park in the uh, in the south of England. Um, it's just like loads of rolling hills, forestry blocks. You know, I'm, I'm reading off yeah. a Puffer's, Puffer's pamphlet here. Yeah, like yeah. when you do your, uh, your, your corporal's course and your senior's course of what the land looks like. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, low, rolling lowlands, highlands, inclement weather rocky outcrops rocky outcrops uh grassy tussocks is that what it is tussock grass yeah yeah. just horrible horrible it just roll your feet over everything and not having you know that look forward to like some solid ground like a track and just constantly doing that but actually having to fight over it too yeah it must have been you know pretty daunting i do remember something though so when i was um when i was in training because i used to I used to read a lot of like books and stuff about about the core. You know what it's like when mm. you you know when you're young. You like pissed yeah. at, pissed at everything get enough you're of doing. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I just remember being at Oakhampton Camp, so mm-hmm. Battle Camp um, on Dartmoor, and we went up to one of the first tours. First time I'd ever been up like to a tour like that, and I just remember looking at it and go like, "Fuck me! If this is what the Falklands was like, yeah. imagine trying to fight up through that, <laughs> kill the enemy, but like they're got the high ground as well." Yeah. And you're coming up to it, so there must have been misery. It was, it was, it was so, it was so horrible. Um, yeah, luckily, mostly the uphill bits were always in full contact. Well, or unluckily, whichever way you look at it. But so there wasn't too much, um, you know, fighting uh, on on the uphills apart from those final attacks when we, we had to take all the high ground at the end. But yeah. So you uh, got to New House, you were there for a little bit. So when did you move on to Douglas Settlement? Same, same day, uh, next day, up early, got out, got to Douglas Settlement. And the tr- the thing was, we knew that if we got to Teal, there was people still there and it was important that we got there. So Recky were given the uh, option to move a little bit more quickly and, and independently and get to Teal as quickly as we could. Um, and just outside Teal, uh, some Land Rovers came out and picked us up and took us in. So we did the searching and checking and making sure they'd all gone. The they said the Argentinians have been a bit bullish, not but not unpleasant, you know, not really bad to them. 
but uh, they took all their food and stuff like that and so that they'd run out of food and things like that so up to this point had you had had you had any like up close contact with the enemy it was nothing just at all it's just clearing land as you move across yeah, it just massive open spaces walking across them and not seeing them and of course they were after fanning head i would imagine they filtered back from that and then back again and back again and just tried to keep ahead of us because they they knew we were coming by then so which yeah. is a which is a strange thing right you've you've invaded you've invaded an island that you wanted yeah whether it's propaganda purposes or not yes that's regardless really yeah but you've got another invade another force coming to take what you've invaded back but You've got the overwhelming supremacy. It's numbers, With yeah. numbers. Yeah. So why would you start withdrawing? Surely, if you were going to invade the country, you'd hold it and you'd swarm numbers at it too? Yeah. Well, they had, um, at that stage, I think about seven and a half, eight thousand people on on the Falklands at that stage. In the end, they had over 11 and a half. But at that stage, so... Um, what I think happened was that at Fanning Head, they took a real kick in. And those people that were left alive, like, I don't need to be hanging around for this, I'm off. But basically worked out which way Stanley was. and off. They were on their, on their bike. We did see, I mean, there was sight of some uh, commanders taking their conscripts' boots away so that they couldn't run away overnight. Um, you know, and uh, there were, later on, uh, we saw the uh, evidence of guys having a gun held to them to make them stay where they, they were. So um, Just yeah. briefly describe um, about what you're talking about with Fanning Head. So Fanning Head was um, an overwatch into the um, Falkland Sound. So you can understand why they, they wanted that. So, um, and obviously the ships were there, but they didn't appear to have anything to engage the ships with. And the SAS were keeping them busy um, and, and giving them a good kick in. And they, they had like mortars and everything there. They took the whole blooming shebang and just bombed the living bejesus out of them. And so, you know, it was, uh, they got hammered, no doubt about it. It was a company strength, um, high casualty rate. And um, those that were left were like, well, I don't need to stay here now. There's no one here telling me I've got to stay. I've got my boots. I'm off. That looks like the way home. Yeah. So Douglas Settlement, much going on there? No, next to nothing. There was nobody there, nobody at home. Um, every there was only a couple of little houses there, and it was, uh, yeah, it was just like, okay, we've hit that next target, and so the whole unit again went into kind of all round, and uh, all round defence, and just hunkered down. The best anyone had was a poncho. So me and my buddy uh, Taff. Taff Crawford, we just hunkered up together. You know, we took it on turns to be the outside one. <laughs> so, you know, just cuddled up together, spooned each other and just like turn around, turn over, change spoon. And, and you know, it was cold, wet and horrible. And everyone's feet were horrid by now. You know, been soaking. And of course, your feet weren't hard because you've been on a ship in your trainers for, for weeks. So, yeah, people were starting to get niggles. What was uh, morale like at this stage? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I think morale was up. I mean, everyone was really pooped, you know, absolutely knackered, probably more knackered than they'd been, only because we'd been deconditioned with the travelling. And then uh, when we got there, we were asked to do something even harder than we'd done previously. So so I think, yeah, everyone was struggling. And there were people going down with twisted knees and stuff like that. And um, But in general terms, the weather was kind of inclement, but wasn't desperate 
um, for that couple of days. And so, yeah, so it was certainly within recce, we were like, you know, another day, another dollar. So we see somebody tomorrow sort of thing. Then, of course, we went to Teal and they came out from Teal to meet us. They were really pleased to see us. Lovely family. They put this huge, great boiler of water on so everyone could have boiling water and that. And then our kit came back two days after that. So we've been about four days, five, five days without a sleeping bag. Uh, and they let us go into their, their shearing sheds. So apart from the fact you came out smelling, smelling and your fingers were all lanolined up. Um, apart from that, it, that was that was a good thing. Um, yeah, so we're getting quite close by the time we got to Teal. We, you know, we were certainly not quite in striking distance, but close to it. So when was the, how did you feel about the, the big march across the Falklands going towards, um, you know, Port Stanley, you know, you got Mount Kent and then inevitably the two sisters as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. So that, that must have been coming up and quite imminent as well. It was indeed. So from Teal, once you went out of Teal, you, you dropped down from Teal along the coast and there was a track first track we'd had god and they had a track that went round down to mount estancia house so we knew we could have some track time um but the first thing i mean they'd nearly all got our boots dry and then the first thing you had to cross across <laughs> a bloody great stream and so your feet were wet again and then but you're on a track which made life a lot easier was that the uh, track where that historical picture was taken with the uh, flag on the No, back, that was it? a little bit further on. That oh, was, was yeah, yeah, oh. that was a bit further on. But uh, the, the Union Jack, yeah. So, yeah, so we yomped along there, um, Teal, and then we came to Bluff Cove Peak. So Bluff Cove was over to our right as we were going, and um, the sea was closest on our left. Um, and so the, the land is getting narrower, and we're getting towards Stanley now. Um, and so, you know, we're starting to get into battle mode, starting to think about, you know, how we're going to do things. Were you tasked to go forward and uh, and do any sort of reconnaissance at, at this point? Or you, did you have to get a little bit closer before that? So, no, we had. A, um, so at Bluff Cove Peak, that's where the commando unit went into its final kind of location. It was good because it was surrounded with rock runs. It had boulders everywhere. People could make little nests, you know, little machine gun nests and stuff like that out of it. It was it was good cover. Um, you know, anyone attacking it would, would have really struggled. Although we were in some parts at the bottom of it, obviously people were up at the top edge of the hill. The, the, the first thing they'd done was put the mortar team out, four of them or five of them, six of them, maybe six. Um, and they were to um, go and try and find more a baseline they could fire us in onto the sisters um so it was their their job and then at the same time they put out andy shaw and five troop yankee company to do an ambush on a track trying to find a mortar line anywhere is pretty tough because you you can't have too much you can't have rocks in it because it'll you know break the blooming the bottom well you know you've been heavy weapons so you know that sort of stuff so it's really hard to find and so the likelihood is that the mortar team, four of them, had not found what they needed, and so they were coming back. Uh, and they hadn't been given an, a wide enough berth to go around the, the, the ambush site. Um, and Andy Shaw was talking to him time and time and time again, is there any other friendly forces? No, no, you're in there on your own, definitely on your own. And sure enough, then they built up the mortars, lads. Um, so it's uh, Jan Leeming, uh, Peter Fitton, Keith Phillips, 
and uh, Andy Uren. They they were all killed. And those were the guys that helped us in recce the most, getting us our, up to speed. So it was devastating. I will never forget Andy Shaw's face as he came round the corner back into HQ to to kind of confirm with the CO, you know, what had gone on. And he, he, he was empty. You know, his eyes were gone. He was just nothing. He was like, God, you know. Um, if you read some of the books, they, they say that he just then got on with it again and, and stuff like that. He might have done, but he has been in a bad way for a while. Bless him, you know. So, Something yeah. like that's never going to never never gonna gonna go leave you. No, it's, it's never going to leave you. Nah, no, It's... <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, you know, you can bring out these cliche sayings like, you know, that that's it's what happens in war. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it does. Yeah. But you would have probably thought back in back in that time that you had the, you know, the top of the range communications and stuff like that. And yeah. people know where each other are yeah. on the back, you yeah. know, on the battlefield, which yeah. is, you know, not, nine times out of 10, you kind of do. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, fast forward 30 30 years, 40 mm. years, you know, in the Middle East. Yeah. You've got super high-tech stuff there, yeah. you know, yeah. GPSs, all sorts of stuff. Mm. And I'm like that sometimes. Are they supposed to be there? They're not supposed to be in that grid square. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, right. where are you? Yeah, I'm here. No, you're not. That's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it still happens in this day and age too. It does. Um I think the fact, well, you know, uh, mortar fire controllers are great map readers, and so I, I don't, I don't think play any blame at their door at all, um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, bad communication, really bad communication. Um, you know, obviously, whoever sent the mortars out, which would have been support company commander, didn't info the people that needed to know, and vice versa. You know, five troop Yankee didn't tell people that needed to know but yeah sad day um yeah not good at all but like you say it, it's a it's a cliche saying but it happens in war doesn't it i have to say uh, that this time we as recce troop were always more scared about coming back into our own lines than we were going out <laughs> Uh, going out towards the Argentinian lines, we're like, Jesus, here we go. This is the dangerous bit. <laughs> That's where you take it right back to recruit training. Do you remember when you were in the Triangular Harbour? Yeah, yeah. And you're coming in, you like, you, you know, you got your passwords, you got yeah, your yeah. double, your double negative uh, passwords and stuff, and you come in in the crucifix position with your rifle yeah, in one yeah, hand yeah, and your arm yeah. out in the other hand. You go, Halt! Who goes there? Yeah. It's like something out of Sharp, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh my god. Is that, please don't let this be a little guy who's really all upset and frightened and scared. But we didn't have any incidents like that with uh, going in and out. We was stopped short, radioed in. We are just outside your lines. We'll be in in ten minutes. Can you w- warn your sentry? So that, that that seemed to work. At this point, before you sort of like moving forward, the main sort of yomp into into battle. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about having that thought process that you know this isn't gonna happen this isn't really gonna happen yeah was it more of a, a reality that you were actually on the ground or is it still going forward you're still kind of having these conversations in the downtime that mm. this is just gonna get called and we're gonna come back and we're gonna spend another seven weeks you know sailing back home again mm. no uh so we were all convinced um as we were going down the south atlantic from uh 
ascension. When the Belgrano went down, everyone's like that. Yeah, we're going to go. And then when the Sheffield went down two days later, we're definitely going to be doing the, the business. And so before we got off the ships in in uh, in the Falkland Sound, uh, we we were very much this is going to be a battle. Yeah. So you're um, you're at uh, Teal Inlet. Yeah. You're sorting all your kit out to yeah. you know to to head forward and yeah. you know for the for the last stretch. Yeah. You know, just explain a little bit. You know what what that was like. Okay. So um, the next three or four days are going to be all from Bluff Cove Peak. So we're sat in this little uh, little area there. And the idea is now fighting patrols, harass the enemy, try and get uh, patrols in behind the enemy, stuff like that. So the tasking came up for Recky to put in a covert uh, patrol that would go in and gather information. Basically, that was the task. Get in there, get all the information you can possibly get and get back out and give it to, you know, bring it back. So we decided or Chris decided that needed to be a slightly bigger patrol. So there's the two teams, mine and Ginge Davis Davidson's team, and uh, we uh, we got bombed up, got ready to go. Um, Chris uh, led it, um, so he led us over the top and then down towards the Murrell Bridge and the Murrell River Murrell, which is on the side of of just on the side of uh, the two sisters. So once we'd gone to the high point, we could see the target easily. Uh, by this time, the artillery were up on the ridge, and they 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 could have line of sight. They could actually see the uh, the two sisters, or certainly the eastern ridge. Um, so the night we went in, it was pea soup. You could not see your hand behind your back. It was just absolute. It was just absolutely blind, you know. And it was all on compass bearings, and we were going in. Yeah, okay, okay. We should come across a flat bit for a little while here. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now we should start climbing up. Yeah, we're climbing up could hear the Argentinians coughing, rattling t- uh, mess tins, things like that. Things that kind of unprofessional, occasional flash of a light, maybe someone having a cigarette or something. Uh, and we knew we were cl- we knew we were close, but it was more hearing things than it was seeing because it was so foggy. The cloud had come down and you just couldn't see anything. So um, we were then it's starting to get towards daylight. And so we thought we'd better hunker down somewhere. So we found this little spot um, about... A third of the way up the eastern sister little place where we could get covered on three sides by rock and just one in and out kind of spot it wasn't big enough to hold all of us it hold about three of us and then the others kind of splayed out around and were giving cover still couldn't see anything so we put a couple of people out so john davidson and davy livingston they went out and they did a recce around in amongst the clouds and the rocks and came back with loads of info you know so as we were looking down the ridge now, on our left side was a minefield uh, and some troops. On our right side was a company in defence. And that was no more than, from our little hidey hole, no more than 40 metres away. To the, the, the ridge went down and that's where, that's where they were, uh, the, the nearest edge to us anyway. So, um, so anyway, the... Uh, the Argentinians about four o'clock in the afternoon. So it got it got daylight, and we sat there through the daylight. Absolutely freezing day. Hands were absolutely falling off, um, you know. Um, and it the wind was strong, and we couldn't get out of that very much. Been raining, sleeting, snowing, and raining, sleeting. Been there about eighteen hours now, 
and uh, with just like a couple of biscuits, <laughs> a couple of biscuits AB and a, you know, and a tin of paste. And you're like, oh my God, starving hungry. And uh, so, so the Argentinians then, for some reason, and I think it's because Bluff Cove, the the Welsh guards were coming round in the ships towards Bluff Cove. Uh, they came in and put themselves across the ridge line facing towards Bluff Coast. They weren't facing up the ridge towards us. And they weren't facing down the ridge to where we wanted to go. They were directly across it, so transverse it. Uh, we counted them in, about 35 of them. About 35. So, so a strong troop, strong troop. And so we're like, mm, okay. So me, the boss, and John had a chat. Artillery, try a, a bop of artillery. Trouble was, they're furthest part away from us was only 300 meters and 700 meters safety and all that and uh foxy went now nah, we'll just we'll just do it we'll just pop them one on because it's in a straight line it'll be a piece of cake and uh they they fired two and then they apologized they couldn't fire anymore because they've been told to save ammo for uh the, the ongoing the next next task so this is the artillery fired a couple yeah, of rounds yeah so fired a couple and we think someone picked up a fragment or something like that but got some sort of injury so the thing we hadn't noticed, no, no antennas at all anywhere. And that was because they had no radios uh, and they decided to send a runner. So we're all there and we can see what's going to happen. The, the, the guy comes out, he's got his rifle on his shoulder, on his sling on his shoulder. He's like that, trudging up, dead slow. He's bored. Why do I get to, being to do this sort of look? And um, so then we had a stab plan. If we got close enough, stab and, and hide him away. Uh, if not, then it was going to be shoot and sh scoot. So uh, he got to within about, I don't know, uh, 35 metres of us, if that, maybe only 25 metres. And he looked up just at the wrong time and saw Davy slotted him straight away, bang, down. He's only a young lad, you know, uh, clearly a, a conscript. Um, not interested, <laughs> didn't want to be there. Um, but Davy got him got him square, nice and quick, bang, down. Uh, and then that was it. We shook out the nine of us in a straight line. Boss was on the right-hand edge. I was in the middle and Davy uh, and John was on, on the left-hand side and we started fighting through. Uh, confusion amongst them was huge. We were just, you know, doing our pepper potting thing. You know, you start, you practice this a million times on the airfield at four or five. So it's, it's not too difficult. Hands were not working. You know, we'd been still for so long trying to do a magazine change. It's horrible, you know, like, oh God, I can't do this. I'm like, you know, oh, just absolutely terrible for, for the first little while. Then the blood gets going and things start surging around and, let, and let's get on with it. And so, yeah, we fought our way through and um john had uh john w was carrying two 66s and uh he decided right this time we'll give him a 66 had this machine gun that the officer was holding the gut the, a pistol over this guy so he couldn't run you know couldn't run away um and uh and he was and he was getting a little bit accurate you know he was, get, he was starting to get a bit close to us so john decided he was gonna 66 it so uh, it gets to 66 and we had the drill, you know, firing 66, three, two, one, bang, and it goes. And uh, sure, it went off. But just as he fired it, someone tried to surrender in front of, a, uh, in front of the rock where the, this guy was on the machine gun. So he stood up and put his hands up and took this 66 in the chest. It didn't go off. It just folded him up like a che cheap suitcase. No, it didn't hit anything hard enough to make it go off. So that was a source of 
Like, bloody hell, did you see that? Everyone along the line. You know, you think you'd be thinking, concentrate, where am I going to go next? But no, it's like, bloody hell, did you see that? You know, it's like that. So uh, next thing, uh, John gets another one out and, and bangs it down towards the uh, the officer that's holding over the gunner. Um, so that was us moving forward, moving forward, getting closer to where the officer was. And Chris and I both were like, we need to get the officer because he'll have stuff on him. None of the others will. They won't have worth it. So we closed that down. John then was now playing with grenades, this bloody Yorkshireman with, with a throw like you wouldn't believe. He's just about to throw. Don't waste it, John. No, I'll get him from here. Whoomp, straight into this guy's blooming back pooch. You know, like, bloody hell, did you throw that far? I couldn't throw that far. Anyway, boom. So that's another bit of devastation over there. Me and Foxy closing in, closing in. Get to the, the, the officer, take him out, through his pockets and everything else. He's got his diary, he's got uh, pictures of his wife, he's got... So what did you do, like, tackled him to the ground or something? No, no, we shot him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was hiding behind a rock, forgot he had his helmet on <laughs> and uh, was, like, just coming up like that and donk, got him right between the eyes, yeah. So that was him down. So a um, bit messy, but... Um, so yes, went through his body, picked up all the stuff we could, loads of maps, all his stuff drawn on it, beautiful stuff, uh, loads and loads of intel, just perfect. Uh, quick as we could, tucking it in our jackets, right, let's go. And we fought our way through the rest of the way, did a quick reorg, and I kind of took charge of that just to make sure everyone had a fresh mag on, down to the bottom, across the open ground. Somebody tried, had a crack at us with a bigger, bigger machine gun, probably a 50 cal. Had a crack at us for a couple of rounds, a couple of bursts, but it wasn't really very close. And then by then we were three quarters gone, but we were on our chin straps. We were absolutely dying. Um, got back to camp, obviously. Uh, didn't know then. Chris had taken a round in the hand. He'd taken it in the bottom of his hand there. And so, uh, so yeah, by his little finger. And um, so he'd taken a shot uh, around there. Um, and... He was the only one injured in any way, shape or form. Uh, the rest of us were all, all great. We were going as hard as we could to get back. Did the pre-call to X company. We're coming in through your line. And uh, sure enough, they were there ready. To, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. It's pitch black by now, dark. Um, went through. Foxy went back uh, down the line and debriefed to Mike Hitchcock, who was the opso. He was a SB guy on a, a, a broadening billet. Um, so he, he spoke to him and then, um, uh, that was, that was it. And me and me and Taff were just thinking about getting cuddled up and, uh, the CO went, okay, lads, you can have the BVs for tonight. And so, I mean, we were close to going down with, you know, hypothermia, hypothermia and they, they brought us food and stuff. So, you know, the, the HQ guys looked after us and we were, <laughs> I think there was, Five in one BV and four in the other. It just crashed out as we as where we were. Up the next day, and then that was it. Really, that was we were then waiting for the next kind of job. So. What was your reflection on that? Because obviously you hadn't been in, apart from Ireland. Yeah, that'd have been like your your first, first sustained bit, yeah sort of section. You know, normally when we talk about how we take on an enemy force, yeah. you're normally like double. Oh, yeah. Well, treble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so like yeah. A, a section to take on one person. Yeah. Um, you know, 
a, a troop would take on like a fire team. Yes. And so on yeah. so forth. Yeah. You, you know, you've got like a section's worth of blokes taking on a troop. Yeah. Which is, you know, you, you, you're kind of talking about a two to one sort of ratio, aren't you really? The wrong way round. Yeah. Completely. You know, if you're the attacking force, the last thing you want to be is outnumbered. So, yeah, I mean, but it was a matter of life saving, you know, we, we had get out or die sort of thing. Um, and yeah, and that, uh, and that kind of spurred you knew that you were in trouble if you got separated from the gang. You know, if you're outside the, uh, the skirmishing team, then you'd be in trouble. So, yeah, it was it was good. It was good. It happened all on its own, really. I'll be perfectly honest. You know, we had we had drilled it time and time and time again. Um, and it happened exactly as you expect, apart from the, a bit slow on the mags, changing mags because bloody hands were freezing. But apart from that, yeah, it was all pretty good. The information they got back from that told them everything they needed to know. Uh, the maps it, it, for the whole of this Falkland Islands, you know, he had a map on him that showed everybody where they were. Uh, in his diary, we had uh, Dinger Bell was a Spanish speaker, uh, captain or major then, a captain, I think. And he he could you know read it all and and it was all it was all kind of really top level good good info really good info so yeah uh, that was a, that was a successful one and a and a very very worthy in my opinion mc for chris fox very worthy it was a really really good M mc strong you know outnumbered like we were he got wounded which apparently is always good if you get wounded <laughs> for if you're going to get a medal so yeah purple art if you're an american yeah that's right yeah so yeah that was that um next night they sent people out from zulu company and they were unfortunate they had had a night like we had the night we got in couldn't see that you know it was just absolutely clagged right in and of course if you got if you got a troop of really well-trained blokes then you might say well we'll have a crack and just to just to let them know we're here but in fog, you never know if you've missed something on your left side, your right side. Are you in amongst them already? And um, to start a firefight was just daft. And so Zulu Company couldn't find a target that they could happily engage uh, in. Uh, and so they, they, they left it and they came back. Next night, um, X Company, three troop, um, were, it was their job to do a, a fighting patrol. Um, and I, I used to be in X Company before, so there's some people there I knew. I'd been a troop sergeant in X Company uh, in the Northern Ireland tour before that. And um, yeah, so I've been in the company a long time. Uh, I had a squad, who's another troop stripey in there, uh, George. So, so I, but uh, the troop that, that we had uh, was uh, led by uh, Lieutenant Stewart, Dave Stewart, and um, He'd been out of training since um, September, the year before. And so he'd only been in the unit a little while. We hadn't done anything warry at all. We hadn't, you know, mountain training, a little bit of mountain training, but nothing uh, very big, certainly not big shooting packages. We hadn't done anything like that. So um, his experience was limited to what he'd had uh, in Limston. Um, so... I was invited to his orders instead of being invited before and Chris, Chris had spoken to him. I don't know what he said to him, but um, he didn't seem to understand that you cannot do a fire team bringing in uh, an attacking force on a ridge. You know, it's, it's, it's straight up and down like that, you know, and we would be going along the top of the ridge. And so it's all got to be skirmishing. 
so he, he went through his orders and, and I kept quiet and bit my tongue a couple of times, d didn't sort of say anything. And then he said that you will only open fire on my order. And I was like, no, we ain't having that. that that's that's would be common. That's, we're not doing that. So I said, look, look, boss, no, you can't do that. That's This is the real thing. You know, you might have someone who's 250 metres ahead of you and can see something that's a threat to all of us. And you're saying until you can see it, he can't engage it. That ain't, that ain't going to work. Well, that's what, that's what I think we should do. I said, well, you know, I'm not being funny, but I don't think it's a good idea. So then the troop stripey, Taff, said, I think he's right, sir. And uh, and so, see, I'm a corporal, and this is a troop stripey backing me up. Quite handy. And so, he went, oh, oh, right then, right, 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 right. So anyway. So he said, right, recce troop will lead, la, la, la. Uh, nothing we didn't know. It was a clear night, um, moonlit with clouds going over the over the moon. So we start moving down. We're, we're not silhouetted. We could off the side of the ridge, gone down a lovely little dark patch, got in, you know, all the way down to the edge of this thousand meters of open ground. And at the edge of that, I stopped and, uh, and waited. And, and he said, why have you stopped? I said, well, what, what uh, configuration do you think we should go across here then? And he goes, I don't know. What do you think? I said, right, well, I'm saying we should use a blob formation. I've never heard of that. Well, no, you probably wouldn't have. But it's a blob formation. You you try and look like a cloud moving over the ground, you know, and you make a, a, a form. If you put a, a arrowhead, it'll be seen. If you put, you know, um, far, single file, it'll be seen because of the spacing. I said, this is something I'd learn off of a SAS guy who's on the ML2s course. And they were telling how they'd use that in South Armagh on the on the moonlit night and he said it's worth a try sometime when you get a chance and this is a bit like a year and a half later i'd never chance it I thought, <laughs> here we go blob formation let's yeah. try it so sure enough i um i got the lads around me uh, it was a great moment because they were all really intense and excited and i was like right, okay we're gonna do lads gonna go across in blob if we hear anything that sounds like an artillery piece firing just run for the other side because that it was a good you know 800 meters across Okay, so off went the first lot, and then the second, and they just drifted and waddled, kept close enough together so there was no obvious spaces, and we got them onto the ridge. So we had the whole troop now on the ridge. So I got there, and I said, uh, okay, so uh, I'm going to go forward, boss, because I got the OWS, and I'll, uh, I'll see what I can see. Okay. I said, follow up, you know, but give me a bit of distance. So up we go, the four-man the, the four, four team, you know, me and three others from Recce, and so up we go, and we get... We get to a point and I can see the shape of someone laying behind a gun and the barrel pointing across, like, you know, the same, same as it, almost the same as it had been the day before. So on the, on the radio, okay, I've got a target, two people um, with a gun. Um, do you want me to engage? Um, no, not yet. We're going to come up a bit closer. So you come up a bit closer. And so he said, right, wait for my call and then I will, I will tell you when to engage them. And then he put light up as an attacking force. What? We don't want light. Anyway, so that was it. We shot them straight away. Mickey and uh, Taff. Uh, we'd got a, um, a FAL, one of the Argentinian weapons that had automatic. We got one of them off of the guys who'd done Top Marlow. And uh, so we were using that. So these two guys, uh, which one was a lieutenant commander, wearing lieutenant commander, so he's a Marine. Uh, and the other one was wearing staff sergeant um, and they were on the gun probably because they wanted to get a bit of action um, so uh, 
they were asleep on the gun. They paid the price. Um, so then all hell breaks out. So people shooting from everywhere, people above us, people below us, every rounds going everywhere. And the, the two, so I've got the, um, what was going to be the fire team with me and he's got the two thirds that are going to sweep over. Um, so we come under fire from the, from the, uh, the, uh, where the minefield is. They put two machine guns in there. They've turned around and they're engaging us on the ridge. So I got hold of Gaz and said, look, Gaz, I need you to stop that. This one of the, the lads from uh, X company, Gaz Marshall, said, see, silent that, that for me. And him and uh, Dickie Howard uh, did that. And they, they did a great job of silencing that gun. So that was, we were safe on our right side. Uh, our pe other people were on our left side and back. And they were behind, they, they were under a big ledge. So the RGs were having to lean out to try and shoot at them. Right. So every time they moved back from the the rock, then they could see them and they would open up on them. So that was going on. Anyway, but the firefight was on for 20 minutes, 25 maybe. Lots of rounds going down and I'm thinking, you know, start thinking about moving. I wonder what he's going to do. So um, because he hadn't been very forthcoming with his leadership, I thought I'd ask him. So I said, can you come around here? And uh, he was like, no, we're pinned down. We're all going to die. It's terrible. We're going to die. We're going to die. I was like, no, we're not. Come around here. He goes, I can't. I can't. I'm pinned down. I said, can you fucking ass around here now? And he came. <laughs> I said, okay, sir. So what's your plan? And he was like, I don't know. What do you think? We're all going to die. Every time we move back from the rocks, they just open up on us. And, and there's no way we can escape. I said, come on. What, what's your plan? He was like, I'm trying to coach him. You know, I'm doing a coaching job here, mentoring. In the middle of an attack. In the middle of an attack. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so you, you haven't got any ideas? No, you've got no ideas. Okay, so this is what we are going to do. My team are going to come in behind your guys, draw the fire. We're going to fire a volley of 66s up into the rocks. That will give you a minute or maybe two minutes of no returning fire. You will peel out, form a line behind us. We will then come in and... Uh, and peel, peel as well. So double peel. Have you got that? Go and tell your lads. Okay, so off he goes. And uh, with that, I shouted, right, we're coming round. And me and Taff were on the nearest end. And I sent my other two lads to the far end. But we could stay near the rocks until we, we needed to, then pop back out. Me and Taff were giggling like a pair of girls because the rounds were going put, put, put just in front of us. Like, And we're like, you know, that's at that point where you know you're in real great danger, but all you can do is laugh and giggle. And uh, we, were, we were at that moment. And so uh, we were giggling away like a pair of bloody schoolgirls. I was prepping up my 66. The other two had got theirs done, right? Stand by. Pulled back a little bit further. Firing 66. Three, two, one, bang. All three going together at the same time. Big old crack, you know, set of bangs. Everything stops from the Argies. They peel around behind us. We peel around the bend them. They then peel behind us again. And we're out. It's that easy. No casualties. No casualties. So off we went back. Um, and um, he was the first one back. <laughs> he was leading at that point uh, down the hill across the open ground. And then he got halfway up the other side. And then uh, I said to him, have you, have you done a reorg? See how many people got? And I think he said, uh, no, no, no. I said, well, let's get that done. Troop Stripe was on it. Started getting on it anyway. So Tafford uh, started getting the... That done. So he did the reorg and that was okay. And then um, I said, right, how's your ammunition? What's your ammunition state? And he was like, um, 
oh, I don't know. I'll find out. So Troop Stripe says, right, you got this, that. Okay, so he's on the, on the radio to the company commander. Uh, I have done this and I've done that and we are uh, now on our way back. Uh, company commander goes, no, go back and hit them again. Well, we've got to cl- cross that 1,000 metres right around again. No, that ain't going to happen. And we haven't got much ammo. So that ain't going to happen. So he goes, uh, okay, the company commander says we've got to go back and hit them again. I said, well, do you think we can do that? And he goes, well, the company commander says we've got to do it. I said, no, no, he's not there. He doesn't understand what's going on. I said, you need to say, we can't do that. We haven't got enough ammunition. And it would be, you know, futile. And so he gets on radio and he goes, my recce uh, call sign says we can't do that because we haven't got enough ammunition. And then I knew I was going to be screwed. <laughs> Completely screwed. And, uh, well, better, better screwed than dead. Better screwed than dead, yeah. So then uh, we got back, uh, back to ex- its ex-company line. So it was their own lines. And so that was good. The company commander was there. Ian Gardner was there to meet um, meet him and take him away to see the CO. I do believe that Ian Gardner had two-thirds of his MC citation written by then. You know, it's it's just, yeah, absolute nonsense. Me and Taff just huddled up in our normal huggle-huggle situation, got our heads down and didn't worry about anything. Next day, Mike Hitchcock came out. Uh, he's up, so. He says, OK, Corporal Wilkin, what really happened? <laughs> I said, what, what? He said, tell me what really happened. So I told him, as I've now told you, and he went, yeah, I thought so. OK, thank you. And that was it. Heard no more of it. But uh, when you look at the citation, you know, by the that next morning that was written up signed up by the four people it needed to be signed up by and it was the perfect as you've read it it's the perfect citation it has all the right words leadership courage you know just all the right words but you and i know as well and this goes down to report writing in the military as well is it, it is it is down to the individuals that that put you forward for those yeah. sorts of things as yeah. well now, during my time in Afghan and Iraq and the, probably yeah. the same as you later on in your career, all sorts of people got written up for, for lots and lots of things. And some yeah. people didn't hit the board because when these reports uh, go forward for commendations, awards, medals, yeah. they go through a board. And That's if they right. don't have the correct terminology, That's and regardless right. of actually what yeah. the individual did, did. they, you know, yeah. you, you might have taken up, you know, a, a whole company of russians i don't know yeah but they chinese or somebody like that but unless it's written up in the correct manner with Absolutely. the correct word and like that nah next <laughs> yeah. and then it's well, kind of, I, someone told me that if there's a spelling mistake in it they just digit it straight away uh, they can't even get the spelling right don't worry but about then it. at the end of the day you know i've had this i've had a conversation with a couple of people as well as okay yeah getting medals and accommodations is good because yeah. we all we all crave that um, recognition. recognition don't yeah, we absolutely yeah yeah but at the end of the day i've done stuff yeah that maybe would have got an award if it yeah. had been written correctly you've obviously done stuff yeah you know that if it had been written correctly but at the end of the day you did the right thing yeah you survived it you come back to tell the tale save some lives exactly you know, and it, you've got a story to tell yeah, at yeah. the end of the day so yeah. 
what what really matters here? Does a, a little bit of a you know a, a Christmas chocolate? That's yeah, that you wear on, once a year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and let's be honest, no one really gives a fuck about anyway, no, no. except for you. Yeah. Um, or you know the memory and the story that you have behind that. Yeah. Um, to tell it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you're here to tell the story. And you know, yeah. some people aren't as fortunate. That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, X-ray company, you've uh, you've done your your little recce and then your little skirmish. Yep. Um, what happened after that? So uh, then it was the two nights after that, we did the big attack onto the uh, top. So recce, their job in those ones is just get the, everybody to the start line. So we took them to the start. Took uh, I took who was that uh, Yankee. X-ray Yankee Zulu. So I took Zulu, point point alert Zulu, put them on their start line, moved back. I have to say the most frightening day in the Falklands was that or most frightened was that night. There was a huge amount of artillery coming down, huge amount of naval gunfire. And these, you know, these naval guns, they whistle as they're coming in, uh, these shells. And you're like, oh my God. And it's amazing that so you hear two come in. They go, whoosh, boom, big boom. And you go, fucking hell. First one. Second one, you go, wow, bloody hell. And then by about the fifth one, you're like, oh, yeah. That's, that one will land somewhere near there. So the this funny, is on the uh, night of the... Well, the night of attack. The 11th, yeah, so 11th and 12th, 12th of June. 11th and uh, 12th, yeah. On the two sisters. On the two sisters. So uh, about 1,600 feet to, to, uh, to gain. Um, so not too huge, but big enough. Um, uh, with a flat surface... If it had been the other way around and we'd been in defence, we'd still be there today. Um, you know, they weren't making best use of, of the cover and everything else they, they had. And they hadn't done enough work there. So, um, so yeah, so you had Zulu on the left, Yankee in the middle, and on the right-hand side was X Company that was supposed to be there to give the firing in, which was, a, again, a non-entity. It was never going to happen. Unless they'd left, like, yeah, exactly. Firing, firing people in yeah. up a hill. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and again, that was down, that was down, in fact, to the company commander. He misjudged the timing. Uh, and so they were two hours late. X company were two hours late getting into position. They had Milans with them, all sorts of other bits and pieces. And they, they did get to fire in, but it was like a bit, bit late, really. Um, so during that night, we lost four guys. Uh, Gordon McPherson, uh, Ian Spencer, uh, Chris Jones and Blue Novak were killed. Uh, and they were all in about the same area. Uh, and um, a guy called Mick Nicely was the um, the medic. And he got, I think he got an MM, but he, he did brilliantly. He, it, they, these guys were scattered and he was having to give first aid across the board. Um, you know, three, four different places. Um, yeah, those those four died. We had a couple of other casualties, but not a lot. Um, come in daylight, um, we swept up. Recky just come swept up from behind. Everyone was already on the top, and then we were told, right, lead us down in onto Sapper Hill. Now Sapper Hill, in theory, had already been cleared by the Welsh Guards because they gave them something after their disastrous um, incident with the Galahad. Um, so and 40 commando they gave 40 command a company from 40 commando that as well so we were going on their third hand um so stanley was pretty much mobbed by that time anyway had the cavalry trying to come down to say they were going to be first into stanley <laughs> the 
Paras were still fighting away on Longdon, which was a horrible, horrible feature. They, if they had one professional team, it was on Longdon, and the the hill just was perfect, very thin, very steep, only one way up to it, and it was single file. And every time they went up, they got shot down, and every time they went up, they got shot down. So, um, so Longdon was going on longer than the rest. Uh, we got onto Sapper Hill, and there was an Argentinian stood there, no weapon. No kit, speaking great English. He goes, "Oh, you guys are here then?" And we're like, "Yeah, let's just uh, let's get out into a spread eagle position. Let's just check you haven't got anything on you. No, I haven't got any weapons or anything. I haven't eaten for five days." And he's like, "Okay, <laughs> all right." So anyway, we um, he was shaking like a, not not just frightened, but um, going down with hypothermia. So we we were told to hold where we were. Uh, we started getting him digging a trench. And, and then we'd lay him down and say, just lay down in that. Oh, it needs to be a bit longer yet and a bit deeper. You know, <laughs> all the time we were making him a cup of tea and uh, we gave him a cup of tea and sorted him out. And uh, he was a nice lad. He'd been to university in London and he'd never wanted anything to do with it and just got snatched off the street, thrown into uniform, get over there, you know. And so, yeah, he was, he was a good lad. But uh, that was it. Yeah, effectively, uh, the war was won. Um, one of the things that was funny about the artillery on that night was that, um, so you fire, the, 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 especially the naval gunfire, you'd hear it whistling coming in. And so whistle, whistle, boom. But every now and then you get, as it went into a boggy bit and it didn't hit anything hard. And so that was quite, that was quite funny. Little things, these little minds, don't they? At that sort of time. But yeah, so then it was yeah, it was just a matter of dangling about, and we stayed on Sapril for two, two more nights. Yeah, so the the, the war officially finished on the uh, on the fourteenth of June. That's right, uh, yeah. nineteen eighty two. Yeah, uh, what was that? What was that initial feeling like when it came across comms that you know the uh, the Argentinians had raised the white flag? As soon as we came over the hill, J Company, who was the guys who were eight nine oh one down there had come back in and been flown in and then they were there putting the Union Jack up. As we came off of the two sisters, the Union Jack was going up. So, and you know, so we were all like, yeah, that's it. It's all over. Uh, of course, then it was a massive problem. 11,700 troops. How do you get them, you know, what we're taking them home, you know? So they put them on the Canberra and took them home. And they had to go round to the Chilean side to drop them off because there's massive riots again in Argentina. They couldn't take them to any of the big docks in in Argentina because they were just rioting like mad because the junta had told them they were winning and they'd sunk all these ships and actually they were beat. They got fed better by us. The prisoners said that they were sat in a compound. They in the open. We had nowhere we could put them. How did you feel after that? Uh, I thought you know job well done. Great experience, you know. It's uh, it's going to be a valuable experience, and um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It sounds weird, but it doesn't it, sound weird because you know I've said this before. It's like you watch all these movies, right? Yeah, and obviously a movie is elaborating, you know, yeah. what what's potentially happened if it's a historical event, and anyway, yeah, yeah, you know, all, all the hardships and and all that sort of thing, but. There's one thing I always remember is someone told me once that 
you know, ninety five percent of war fighting is just fucking misery and yeah, uncomfortable, right, yeah. and like five percent of it is like the action, actual action it's part of it, and the elation afterwards. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you're when you enough. when you are in a firefight, and this is sounds you know really strange and almost kind of Call of Duty esque, yeah. is that it actually is like really fun. Yeah, really fun. You know, you hear that crack in the thump, and you're like, fuck it, yeah, did it be? Yeah, yeah. Stupid dick, yeah. you know? But then, you know, there is that morality side of it where it's like, you know, when people do start getting hit and, and going yeah. down, obviously it, it changes a little bit. But, you know, on retrospect, you know, I wrote a, a, a little post a while back, you know, about, you know, leaving the military and, and what I've learned. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I put in there is like being in the contact is fucking fun. Yeah. Like it is, it yeah. is fun. How many hours do you train for that s- several minutes that you get actually in contact? You know, unless you're in a S- SBS, Blibin, you know, direct action team, you're not going to get that on a, on a broad basis. And no, unless you're in a big war, you know, and so certainly in Afghan, I know the SB had some, some t- some real big team hits. Yeah. So 40 years on, you know, obviously this year is yep. the, the, the 40th, 40th anniversary. Have you got any sort of like reflective thoughts on, you know, what has happened, what was accomplished now you know, that there's a, the period of time has gone by? Yeah. Well, as I said, I went down there in 2014 um, for the core birthday. And uh, it was great to see that the, the Stanley was bigger and more tracks and roads everywhere. Obviously, the airport is fab. You know, it's a proper working aerodrome if you like um the um the germans have actually got a direct flight now coming in from um somewhere in germany and coming in in one hit in a the new 380 aircraft so you know that's that's good T- uh, tourism is massive the amount of people that go to the falklands and so all those bootnecks that stayed behind afterwards or were already there you know uh, uh have got jobs because there's Tourism, you know, take people around the battlefields doing stuff like that. And then um, there's oil, obviously, minerals, stuff like that. Pipeline already going around to Chile to a, 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 re, a, a you know, a plant to do stuff with it. So it, you can see how it's thriving. Fishing, obviously the fishing, people used to just go down there and kill all the whales and stuff like that. Now they have to get permits and they're paying the British government to do it. The Falkland Islanders buy all their fuel offshore. So they, they've got their own uh, fuel tanker boat. And they go out and meet a, a boat 12, 12 miles off, plug in, take a big suck of fuel, bring it back. And so they're paying sort of 60p for their fuel, you know, per litre. So, so that's worked out well. A lot of young people left the Falklands. Um, they get to about 15, 16 and they're like off because the, the potential, if you're not going to go into the farm or whatever kind of line of work your dad's got or that then you're going to be stuffed but um in general terms you know it's a better place now than it was as far as infrastructure um you can cut about just about everywhere you can actually now drive onto where the new um uh four five commando plaque is and that's right in the saddle of the thing um so i don't know if you want to pop these out i don't know if you can get them out that's the actual one I got made up. When I went down there in 2014, it was being rubbed off. So I got that one made and that's what the ground looks like and where it sits. So right in the middle of the saddle. So anyone going this year, as a 40 years on, if they're 60, 
could easily walk to to see it and and be there and we attacked up against that so yeah yeah i mean looking at this picture i'll put it up in in the uh in the posts and stuff that i yeah, put yeah. up for the falcons yeah yeah it's, it's quite it is quite barren open ground as well oh though, yeah 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 and it's, it's, i mean uh, very little cover the odd little foot tuck and fold in the ground but yeah the actual that piece of ground is quite tricky yeah right We've been going for an hour and 45 minutes now. Yeah. I am 100% going to do a part two with you with this. Okay. So we'll, we'll, I'll get you back. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 we'll, uh, and we'll continue. Really good. And I'll get some questions out there as well from people that have listened to this. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm firing back here because I okay. also want to hear, and this is going to sound quite boring, but I find it quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Like the logistical side of things, you know, you were talking about you had 11,000 arges on the island. Like, yeah. you know, what the fuck do you do with them? Yeah, exactly. You know, and what yeah. did they do for those few days? Who accommodated them? Who fed them? Yeah, and, yeah. and all this sort of stuff, you know, it's stuff that yeah. you read books sometimes, you hear all like the, the really cool stuff that, yeah. that's in there, but actually, the nit, 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 yeah, and there must have been some shenanigans in the oh, background yeah. that used oh, yeah. to run <laughs> there, was lot, there was lots of rounds going off in the night because people had found, you know, the, the, a lot of the Argentinians had 45 automatics and, uh, you know, so people would pick them up and, I mean, wog them. Yeah. So it was all kinds of that sort of stuff going on. Yeah, so 100%, I'll get you back for uh, right. for, for another part of this. Okay. So, uh, Marty Wilkins, it's been an absolute pleasure talking absolute. to you, mate. Thank you for telling your story as well. Yeah, pleasure, mate. Cheers. Good to meet you. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. And also leave me a little review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.